the naturally occurring psychoactive compound, psilocybin, is found in over 200 species of mushrooms. Despite their millennia of use by humans for mental and spiritual well-being, they have been classified falsely among the most dangerous and illegal of substances. Locked away from those who need them most. The Psilocybin Chronicles documents the individuals who courageously consume, collect, or cultivate these mushrooms to improve the quality of their lives. Won't you join us as we welcome the return of psilocybin? Psilocybin Chronicles. I am your host, Eric Osborne. The Australian Institute of Family Studies states on its website that child abuse and neglect refers to any behaviors by parents, caregivers, other adults, or older adolescents that is outside the norms of conduct and entails a substantial risk of causing physical or emotional harm to a child or young person. Such behaviors may be intentional or unintentional and can include acts of omission and commission. The five main subtypes of child abuse and neglect are physical abuse, emotional, maltreatment, neglect, sexual abuse, and witnessing family violence. The consequences of experiencing child abuse and neglect will vary considerably. For some adults, the effects of child abuse and neglect are chronic and debilitating. Other adults have less adverse outcomes despite their histories. Critical factors that may influence the way child abuse and neglect affects adults includes the frequency and duration of maltreatment and if more than one type of maltreatment has occurred. In attempting to explain some of the adverse outcomes associated with chronic and multi-type maltreatment, a concept that is often employed is complex trauma. Complex trauma reflects the multiple and interacting symptoms, disorders, and multiple adverse experiences and the broad range of cognitive, affective, and behavioral outcomes associated with prolonged trauma, particularly if occurring early in life and involving an interpersonal element. Although most survivors of child maltreatment do not go on to maltreat their own children, some evidence suggests that adults who were abused or neglected as children are at increased risk of intergenerational abuse or neglect compared to those who were not maltreated. A review of the research literature concluded with an estimated one-third of children who are subjected to child abuse and neglect go on to repeat patterns of abusive parenting towards their children. And while I know this Estimation of a third of victims, you know, going on to be abusers doesn't really seem like a, a lot. The implications of continued abuse have such far-reaching consequences. You know, we see so much uh, problematic behavior uh, and treatment of others in our society. And, and really, how much of that stems from individuals being abused in their younger years or maltreated? We really would do well to have more compassion on abusers. Uh, it's easy to have it on the abused, but the people who often commit some very, very painful acts um, are often acting out and trying to, trying to process their own abuse, things that they might not even remember. So, you know, anyway, we, we just can't dismiss that you know, only a third of people go on to be abusers. We need to really think about this. That we should have a zero tolerance for abuse. Nothing. 
verbal, physical, sexual, doesn't matter age, gender, nationality. No, we should not tolerate people speaking ill of other people. And I'm guilty of it. I'm not saying that I'm not. I'm not trying to be a holier than thou. Um, but when you really reflect on the pain that comes from just just being mean, you know, whatever it is, uh, being being mean to people. Uh, and I know that's kind of, I, I'm not trying to minimize abuse. There are certainly levels of abuse, uh, but none of it should be tolerated. We should be treating each other with respect. When we find those places of pain and uh, when we find ourselves acting out in ways that we really know is not productive, uh, helpful, healing, uh, then we should really, really check that. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm actually dealing with a few things here in my personal life. Really, lately, uh, right here in the Kroger, right down the road from me, they, uh, God, this guy, this guy, you probably saw it, the Kentucky Kroger. You may have seen it if you watch the news. I don't, so the only reason I know it was on the news is because people were telling me Louisville's on the news. Um, but yeah, the guy that shot um, two African-American adults, uh, one in front of his own grandson. It was obviously a racially motivated occurrence and uh it is just so painful it's so painful when as this pain accumulates and it expresses itself and the more pain that it causes it's just it breaks my heart it really does and you know it sounds like a cliche but the children really are the future how we treat our children uh what our children see this is this is so so important so even that even if it's just a third of people going to carry on abuse there are so many levels of abuse I and mean, we see maybe not violent sexual or uh you know emotional abuse uh, all the time but we see abuse on small levels every day and we can we can help bring that to an end I wasn't abused, you know, myself really as such as a child. I didn't have, uh, uh, well, I did have a belt. Um, that was the days when you got a belt to the backside when things didn't go as they were supposed to. But, you know, I like looking back at it, the my own father, he was suppressed. His creativity was suppressed by his father. And my mother, she lived a life under the oppression of women and children or to be seen and not heard. I saw that and both sides of my large Catholic family. Uh, and and these behaviors, these learned behaviors, though that's not what I learned, it, it absolutely has had an impact on my relationships, uh, on how I view myself, on how I relate with my siblings and my society, my wife and my children. I'm still in the process of learning to be what I hope to become a balanced uh, and truly affectionate father. Uh, and, you know, without having a direct example of that, it's, it's had its challenges. Um, but we've got to overcome these abuses or neglects um, and rise above them. I found myself occasionally that I revert back to mainly the man up mentality. You know, that's what was put on me. 
I know there's a lot of men my age that uh, find that they can't feel, they shouldn't feel, they, they, they try to suppress things and just be the man and keep pushing through. And, you know, there's times when that's a really helpful thing to have, and I'm very grateful that I, I can do that. But we've got a process. You know, we're feeling creatures. We're emo- emotional creatures. Um, I, I, my first son is where I really perpetuated this behavior. Um, you know, that's your, <laughs> I think all of us who have children know that that first one is oh, a guinea pig, I guess is a way to put it. Um, psilocybin has really given me a great deal of insight into my behaviors. Uh, it's been a continual process that I encounter regularly, uh, reminding me, look, how are you, what, what type of father are you being? What type of father are you being? How are you treating your children? Um, so, you know, that's very valuable and I do continue to backslide, but I do continue to improve and acknowledging that is probably more important than acknowledging our failures. (laughs) We should be compassionate to ourselves, right? Uh, possibly, well, not possibly for real, even for abusers. We found, we, we found out recently that there's a, a uh, sexual predator that lives in our neighborhood. He's registered and you know, it's online. And um, we were walking with our child the other night and he was outside. And of course, I had that initial fear and I still am aware. Uh, but I also found myself trying to have compassion for him uh, because he is a product of his environment uh, and his choices for sure as we all are, uh, just like my guest in this episode. Uh, he has a pretty similar story, and that's why I started out with this topic. Uh, it's a story that I'm sure many of you, particularly our males, uh, male audience, are able to identify with. Uh, it's relevant to women also as well. Uh, it's good that men, we truly need to do a better job of understanding women. These, um, these maybe 60% of our society right now, I don't know what... what uh, nature's holding in the balance right now but um you know we have been taught that they are not to be heard until we ask them a question (laughs) and that is insanity so anyway ladies yes i I think this can be helpful for you and uh, all of us as we just try to understand each other and have compassion towards each other. We've all got to be raising our levels of awareness, right? We, we <laughs> does no good to say that your neighbor needs to uh, raise his level of consciousness if you are not doing the same. Uh, <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. Uh, we got to take it on ourselves to heal ourselves uh, and ensure that these patterns don't pass down or, you know, as minimal as they can, because we all make mistakes and we all have successes. Based in New York City, Justin Townsend is an accomplished, award-winning entrepreneur, international business leader, and pioneer with more than two decades of experience building companies from the ground up to profitability, both in Europe and USA, across a variety of industries. Justin has a long and abiding interest and has been involved in psychedelic sciences and associated healing modalities since his first experience with ayahuasca in 2002. Won't you join me in welcoming Justin Townsend to the Psilocybin Chronicles. All right, Justin, welcome to the Psilocybin Chronicles. Real pleasure having you with me today. Thanks, Eric. Nice to be here. It's uh, really been really been a pleasure sharing this uh, year, or this year anniversary, I should call it, I should say, with you. So 
Uh, yeah, we can get into that a little bit more later. But as we always start with, we'd like to ask if there was one person you could dose psilocybin with throughout history, personal or global, someone you know or didn't know or imagined, who might that be and why? Well, it's, it's hard to limit it to one. Yeah, hard to limit it to one for sure. I think on a personal level, that would have to be my father. Hmm. Why your father? If you, um, you know, I am my father's son. He was raised in a certain way. He was disciplined by his father in a certain way. And he disciplined me in that way too. And we've since, that was physical. As a young child, I was terrified. I think it's one thing when you discipline a child and you do it in a controlled fashion, but when you lose control and anger is what's influencing uh, the discipline and a loss of control, then the outcomes are very rarely any, any good. Mm. Um, so I realized as I became a father and I had a daughter that I didn't want to put her through what I went through as a child. And uh, I was pretty determined going into fatherhood to not carry on the, the negative family karma, right? Mm. Um, definitely want to carry on the positive family, family karma, but certainly didn't want to pass on the negative family karma. And uh, I remember it came to a head once. She was less than 12, 13 months old. She'd been screaming at night. I got up to change the diaper. Uh, I was a bit hungover. Took her to the changing table put her down, she's wailing and kicking, and I felt my right arm pull back to go and give her a slap on the butt. But my right arm never made it back down towards her butt again. That was kind of a crystallization point where I thought to myself, wow, I was about to lay a hand on my kid. And uh, since then, I've always opted for understanding human behavior and psychology as much as I could, and opting for uh, dialogue and conflict resolution as a means to go forward mm. as opposed to anything else. Hmm. Wow. So, so I'm expecting that that has played into your experiences with psilocybin. Your father, is he still alive? Yes, he's still very much alive, doing well. Actually, my father and I made our peace, I guess, some 10 to 12 years ago. There was a bit of a, a coming together and... Uh, he knew, my, both my parents knew that I'd been upset, but what I was doing was I was, I was holding them responsible for how I felt today. Mm. And that put me straight into victim mode. Um, and therefore, as long as I'm blaming them for who I am today and how I feel about things, then I'm never going to be able to move out of that cycle. Mm. I'll mm. remain forever a victim. Right, because they could be considered victims of their own upbringing, exactly. right? Exactly, exactly. Uh. And that's how I had to reframe it. Mm. I mean, nobody taught my parents how to parent, right. really, right. apart from their own parents. Uh, my mother was 19, my father was 21 when I was born, and they must have both been both elated and terrified all at the same time. <laughs> and still maturing mm -hmm. as adults mm -hmm. themselves. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So... Parenthood is not an easy thing at all. And the examples that we have uh, are what we have to go by. Uh, and so it's really impressive to see that you have consciously made, uh, made an attempt to break from those cycles. 
So thank my, you. Yeah. My, just one more thing on that, I guess. My, I used to have incredible rage and anger mm. and lashed out very quickly. And uh, it would boil and boil within me. And I've got to say that that used to be exist. It could, at a drop of a hat, it could be there level nine out of 10 immediately. Level mm. 10 didn't take much to push me up there. And uh, these days, I mean, I was working on other healing modalities over the years from meditation to uh, breathwork related modalities. And that certainly helped wind down the anger. As odd, obviously, as, as I matured, things decreased a bit. But I've got to say these days that it's like a level one. Right. There are still remnants of the, those things that trigger me left within me. Mm-hmm. But um, they are well within my control now. And I decide if I need to dial anything up or dial it down. It doesn't have control of me anymore. Um, I don't become angry. I don't become it. Mm-hmm. Right? Anger is a thing that rises or can go down. I don't let it consume me. Right. Well, I think that's. I think that is uh, going to come into our conversation even more so as we continue. I'd like to go back to psilocybin now and uh, kind of start to explore when you first encountered psilocybin. Um, not necessarily consumed it, but when you even can you remember the first time you heard of magic mushrooms? Certainly, it would have been. I, I used to be a prolific reader as a kid, mm-hmm. all sorts of fantasy and different types of fiction. So, coming across magical landscapes and fairy tales, the uh, uh, the Amanita muscaria always makes its appearance to begin with. Mm. And then really, I guess as a young teenager, you I was aware of magic mushrooms, didn't know where to get them, um, but they had the, the, the model that existed around them. For me at that time was, these are dangerous, um, you shouldn't eat them, they'll poison you and uh, uh, make you do stupid, crazy stuff that you might end up hurting yourself or others. Mm-hmm. So for me, I had no desire whatsoever um, as a teenager to really pursue that. It wasn't really around at the time. Uh, I guess raves were around at the time in my late teens, early 20s, and their mm-hmm. MDMA and acid were around. Didn't really get involved with acid at all. Where um, did, where, uh, let's, let's, obviously, mm-hmm. you didn't grow up in the States. No, no. <laughs> um, so I'm interested uh, if you could kind of maybe describe the, that I think you just did uh, overall, but the social um, understanding of psilocybin uh, in your hometown? So I grew up in um, just outside Oxford in England, born in 1971. So I had the 70s and 80s uh, as a nice period. And it actually felt like quite a safe period in the world in general back then. Um, and the general consensus across the UK was just the model of thinking was these substances um, have a high risk of abuse. These substances have no medicinal value. Mm-hmm. That's the general consensus, and people are fearful of them. I guess you came in after the you were born in seventy one, so then the sixties, uh, early seventies, you weren't you weren't old Not enough part to experience of it, no. that. You know, so it's it's interesting to note how that um, social perspective shifted so quickly. Uh, when when were you then um, actually ready to consume psilocybin? What brought you to psilocybin and your first experience? I was ready. I tried a few very low dose attempts. Um, actually, I've got to take. It, it actually begins with a different psychedelic. Okay. That led me into this. Okay. So I'd spent a long, long time meditating, working on myself, uh, working with the energy body. Things were going extremely well for me, and then I reached a plateau where I wasn't. I didn't really feel I was progressing at all, and that went on for quite some months. And then in about early two thousands, maybe two thousand, two thousand and one. 
Um, I had a friend, a good friend of mine, who I'd been on a few other retreats with and healing modalities with, that um, had experimented with ayahuasca um, in Europe mm -hmm. on a couple of occasions. Mm -hmm. So I did a lot of research. And uh, there wasn't so much written down about it then, even then. This was nearly 20 years ago. There is now a profuse amount of information. People can inform themselves very well. So I thought ayahuasca was going to help me basically break through whatever was blocking me, and I'd have to be able to go back to the UK and then continue my practice. That was the theory going in. Mm. Um, it just so happens that I did the dieta, which is required prior to consuming ayahuasca. I had breakfast that morning, fasted all day, and then we were given our first cup of ayahuasca, and 15, 20 minutes later, nothing happened. Another cup was offered, so I took that, and half an hour later, nothing has happened, and then I had one more booster cup at the end, and nothing really happened. Visually, things were mildly different around me, but my body felt fine, my head felt clear, and nothing really happened. So slept, woke up the next morning, had a light breakfast, fasted all day, and basically repeated what had happened the previous night. Offered the first one, nothing happened. Offered a booster, nothing happened. Offered a third one, and then I just was like being shot out of a cannon. And the place I went to in the first hour seemed very familiar to me. It felt like home. It felt like I'd spent eons of time there. I just felt absolutely full and surrounded by an ocean of unconditional love. And so therefore I continued to keep, and I was moving in and out of, I guess, a dualistic into a unified, because at one point I'm observing all of this, and then a few moments later I'm actually immersed in it and I've lost myself in it. And I remember cycling in and out of this for about an hour, and it was just the most beautifully intense sensation of my life at the time. Um, the full whole body orgasmic sensation was there as well. Mm. And so I'd lowered my guards right, right down. And, uh, and then what happened next was the situation completely did a 180 with all my guards down. Mm -hmm. And I was in a state of absolute utter horror and terror for a good six hours thereafter. Sometimes falling into unconsciousness, it, I was physically drained at the end. It didn't feel like I was, this was not about dissolution of the ego and ego death. And I was somehow struggling against that because that happened immediately as soon as I took that mm, ayahuasca. That sixth dose. Yeah, exactly. A lot, probably quarter to half a liter of it, maybe in the space of 18 oh, hours. Wow. Mm. Um, so I then spent the next six hours in terror that I thought no human being could go through and still live at the end of it. And that, so when I eventually came back down, um, the group I was with, there were a lack of facilitators. The person that was facilitating and leading the group, it turns out, wasn't too experienced after all. Mm. Um, and so I think I didn't get the help and guidance needed during that that I needed, which would have, at least if I'd have gone through a difficult phase, I would have popped out the other side of it in a better place. Right. But in this case, my re-entry back into reality uh, was not a positive one. And I really appreciate when people are doing uh, psychedelic journeys that the re-entry is very, very important. So um, it pretty much unhinged me for quite some time after that. I mean, months and months and months. I'd be back working in my corporate location in Germany, and I'd all of a sudden feel this same energy that I'd experienced with ayahuasca surround me. 
I'd feel my legs turn to jelly. It would feel like I was dissolving into millions of pieces and basically that my very soul was being sucked out through the top of my head. And this was an extremely malevolent, terrifying mm-hmm. energy to it. So, so you thought you'd do some more psychedelics? I thought I'd do some more psychedelics and I did some low doses of psilocybin in the one to two gram range. And um, they were always heavy for me then. They were ugly. Um, and I just, it, what, I wasn't going back to what I experienced with ayahuasca. It was something different, but I, it was just, it felt like stagnant and mm-hmm. nothing was much happening. Um, so let's, let's go back though to that point where you first met psilocybin. What okay. gave you the courage to do that? First of all, um, it was probably Dutch courage cause I had a few drinks and somebody had some chocolates with, uh-huh. um, mushrooms in. Uh-huh. And I think that what had happened is they'd had them in a bag and all the fine grain towards the end are condensed. And that's what they'd use to, to mix in with a chocolate. Mm. And, um, I guess I would have put that at a, maybe a three to four gram type experience. Mm. And that was on, with top, my, on top of alcohol. You like, yeah, yeah. On top yeah. of alcohol with my wife at the time and the totally the incorrect set mm. mindset some completely the, the totally incorrect setting and it was extremely heavy for both of us no she does too she does too okay. yeah and she had an awful time um so i was left with this problem which was if this is where i'm going to somehow end up when i die because that's what it felt like that's not where i want to go to mm-hmm. And suicide ideation for me was also a possible way out. I don't think I was serious, but I thought, you know, I can't bear to live with what I know. Right. And, um, but then again, if I go and kill myself, I'm going to end up back in that space again. So that wasn't an option. So I drank a lot. I did quite a bit of drugs for a while to try. I did, I was not interested in going into an altered state of mind that was in a, that was a higher level. Right. I was interested in wine or drugs that would bring me a little bit down. Numb it out. Yeah. Numb it out. Um, did a lot of processing over that time and then I searched for every single possible way I could to go around this and, and solve it mm. without having to go back into this space again. But it turns out, I realize now that the only way is through. Mm. So I'd spent, also spent many, many, many years since 2002 working with other healing modalities, um, researching all types of psychedelic experiences. I've got a bookcase full with psychedelic literature, um, trying to understand what I've been through. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't really, ident- really identify it in, in anybody else's writings, ancient or new. There were hints of what I'd experienced, but uh, nothing like you read in a book these days or even from 100 years ago. So I eventually was doing some research and I came across Micro Meditations. And I thought, okay, I'm going to reach out and uh, have a chat with this guy, Eric Osborne, and uh, see what he has to say. And I've got to say, Eric, that when I, when I first connected with you, I felt very comfortable, and I felt very good about sharing my history and my background and what I'd experienced with you. Um, you didn't set my expectations too high. You, you were confident that we could work through it in some way, not that it was going to be a panacea, but that um, i most likely feel better afterwards mm. in some way shape or form and so i came out to micro meditations uh this time last year in september 2017 on a private retreat and uh with one other participant and i plucked up my courage and i can tell you that i was terrified i was trembling 
Um, there was a cacophony going on inside my head of my ego and other, I guess, sub-personalities all trying to talk me out of doing this. And they know me better than I know myself. They were extremely mm -hmm. persuasive. Mm -hmm. um, and this went on for the days leading up to it. It, arrived, it happened when I got here, and it was right up to about an hour before we dosed. And about an hour before we dosed, I just decided within myself it's going to happen. Then that all those loud protesting voices just disappeared in a heartbeat. And it was just calm silence and a slight amount of foreboding. I mean, I was going into it with foreboding still, but with some courage. And so I think I started with three dry grams and um, I felt anxious going into it. I focused on my breath. I was getting more scared as the sensation was coming on, but I knew what the sensations were gonna be and then I relaxed into it and literally passed over the threshold, if you like, with three grams. And I went straight back to the realms that I'd experienced with ayahuasca in 2002. Um, I was just preface that by saying it, that was my intent coming in to understand what had happened to me, why it had happened and to make my peace with it. Mm -hmm. And I've been, and I've been focusing on it for many, many years. So, um, I'm not surprised that when the psilocybin took effect, that I was straight back into that. Right. And, it, and it felt like it was extremely deep within my psyche. Um, and I sat there within that space, um, but this time with a completely different energy around it. It was back out of that dualistic, up, down, left, right, right, wrong. It was into the mm -hmm. unitive state mm -hmm. where there is no good and there is no evil. Mm -hmm. And I just sat there and was bathed in that unconditional love and energy for hours and all the darkness and the heaviness and worry I've been carried around just lifted and kept lifting off and kept lifting off and you know I was yawning a lot and then there was I was weeping there was deep grief coming within me that was coming out and being processed and um, yeah I've got to say that it completely turned my ayahuasca experience around it felt like I closed the loop on this mm -hmm. and that um do you remember when you just kind of sat up and started laughing and you're like that's it like that yeah oh. I, I remember that very well oh, yeah just I it was it. <laughs> yeah i get it it was yeah. just so simple for me then yeah. and uh so yeah that's how i first really got involved with sort of cyber in such a way that it was able to help me transform an incredibly difficult experience that mm. had weighed heavily on my shoulders um for a number of years you know you and i haven't talked really about that since that retreat um, and listening to you now recall, um, brings me back even to that initial conversation that we had on the phone. And I can just so clearly recall the, the distress, just like this very deep, deep, like distress that how do I get out of this? How do I change this? Uh, and yeah, we talked for quite a while and I just, oh man, I just remember how you, it just, I could feel the weight that you've been carrying for all these years on that. And, uh, when when it lifted there that night and then as you helped that other participant uh, the following night mm -hmm. move, move through um, it was all really beautiful to see it unfold and it's really been beautiful to to see our relationship maintain and seeing how how beautiful you are as a person thank uh, you um, so it's really really a pleasure and thank you for you know trusting me uh, with because what a fragile state mm. you know and you know how important from that first experience 
unqualified facilitators or administrators call Absolutely. it um, how they play the, such a role in the outcome um, well so let's talk a little bit more then since that's just just been a year but let's talk about what how you've been engaging with psilocybin if at all since then yeah so actually so I've got to admit that in the years following ayahuasca, what that ayahuasca trip did to me was it did give me a damn good clean out on many, many levels. Mm -hmm. And whilst I felt somewhat unhinged for quite a few months afterwards, and whilst it was extremely difficult, and I had various experiences, um, I was, it, it somehow in its own perverse way had also cleaned me out, but left me in a terrified state. Mm -hmm. And um, so life after a few years began to get better. since being here in September of last year, um, I've then continued to, historically now, um, past tense, um, both cultivate and then also um, consume psilocybin at least on a monthly basis. Okay. Um, I'm at a point now where uh, I feel very comfortable on, on five dried grams. I get a lot of work done um, and I do that on a, yeah, like I said, about a once a month, once a month basis. Okay. Uh, have you seen uh, any types of um, patterns or themes, consistencies through your trips? Have you gotten a, t- a kind of um, um, span now where you can see longitudinal progress being made on different issues? Absolutely within myself, yeah. I mean, um, a whole load of anxiety lifted off, first of all, and fear that I was carrying around. So I would say that what's left within me now are remnants that continue to be worked upon, and I work upon them with the psilocybin. I feel when um, I'm on a psychedelic journey with psilocybin, I can feel it working at the pockets of disharmony within me. Mm. And when it starts to do that, I then start to feel nauseous sometimes. Mm. And of course, my initial reaction always is to resist the nausea, right? We all do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes you, it overwhelms you and you just puke. But the, the kind of vomiting you do is not like you consumed a half a bottle of vodka in under 10 minutes and now the room's spinning and you've got to puke it all out again and all the acid, the kind of vomiting that you do with psilocybin is from a very, very deep place within yourself and your entire musculature just spasms and compresses and squeezes these deep, deep places and these pockets of disharmony. Mm -hmm. And then you either dry heave or you do throw up. And I've always felt so much lighter Mm -hmm. in a way I can't describe. I mean, it's one thing to be sick and feel better, but right. I felt massively better and massively lighter. Yeah, It's more than just a physical purge, it's an emotional purge. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been, now I go into the nausea. It doesn't come as frequent as it used to, mm-hmm. but now I, I just feel the hint of the nausea there. I'm like, show me where to go, please. I, right. I go straight into that and uh, I come out the other end feeling lighter. Um, visually, I feel very comfortable in the mushroom space. Um, it's a place that I feel I know at least a landscape that I have access to, but I know that the undercurrents are very, very deep. But I know at the same time, I've also been very, very far out with ayahuasca as well. Mm. And um, certainly I always go into the mushrooms with a slight bit of foreboding. And sometimes still the ego is, ah, maybe not tonight. Mm. Um, or once I've taken them, it's not too late for a stomach pump, you know? <laughs> um, uh, so much less anxiety overall. Yeah, a lot less anxiety, a feeling of peace, equanimity. Mm. Well, I mean, 
I used to be even prior to my mushroom, my sort of like my uh, sorry, my psychedelic experience. Prior to that, I used mm. to be a very anxious individual. Mm. Anxiety was what dominated my life, and uh, with periods of depression in between that as well throughout my teens and early twenties. Um, so to now not have anything like that, mm. I've not had depression in many many years. Um, anxiety would spike in a rational situation. Right, like I see somebody hurtling down the highway towards me on my side of the road, mm -hmm. but no more irrational thinking, no more irrational thought loops, none of the negative emotions and feelings or neuroticisms that are associated with that. At the same time, I've become more open creatively. Creatively, um, I found I've found also that um, if you like beyond my five senses, that my intuition has definitely grown more stronger. Um, I feel that my sense of integrity has become stronger. Um, if I try, let me put it this way, if I try and lie or manipulate or do something less than honest, I get rung like a fucking bell. Mm. So I would say to you that for me, um, the softest pillow to sleep on at night is a clear conscience, <laughs> and I work at maintaining that. Mm. I believe that truth always delivers the best possible outcome. Um, that's a kind of that's the mushrooms have helped me get to that place as well, where mm. it's okay to speak my truth, and not everybody always has to like it. Mm. Um, so can, yeah, can, much more well-rounded. Can we go back to your relationship with your father and your daughter, and how uh, maybe soul seven has helped you grow and heal through some of the trauma that you experienced there, and what you, um, how you engage with your child? So. The rage was something that didn't turn into anything physical. And that was the first step to reduce the impulse to want to get physical with anybody for that matter, but not just with my right. own child. Yeah, right. Right. Um, but then the next step is the rage can be expressed verbally by shouting and losing control. So the next step, I mean, and I was a bit of a shouter. Um, so the next step really was to get a handle on the verbal output. Mm. Um, and I did that over time as well. So um, my daughter, like a lot of teenage teenagers these days, you know, has had anxiety issues and, and depression and, and other things that she's been through. Um, it's been painful for me to observe that. Um, I feel somewhat responsible for that because I wonder whether it was part of me and my, as a young father, already beginning to condition her with how I was then with my anger and my anxiety mm -hmm. and, and uh, whether it was I influenced her on a subconscious level via my energy field, via my emotions I was expressing. I might have thought I was hiding it all, but if she was looking to me as the role model as a, as a, for a male and looking to how I interacted with her mother, um, she learned all of those things from me, what it is that a man does and how a man relates to a woman. Um, so the fact that she has her own issues is something that, that, that hurts me a great deal. And I have to resist the temptation to get too involved. She has to work through her own process. Mm -hmm. um, she knows I'm there to support her. So um, our relationship has definitely got a lot closer as she's gone out of her teens and into her early 20s now. She's turned out to be a very confident, on the one hand, vulnerable, and still got her stuff to process. But on the other hand, to be a very assertive, confident, and forthright young lady, mm. which makes me extremely proud. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I've passed both good and bad on, but I'm trying to compensate at least with right. the good. 
but but back to psilocybin have you maybe you haven't maybe you have have you had experiences with psilocybin where you have um gone back into some of the trauma you've experienced as a child specifically actually um what at the times when i felt a lot of grief mm-hmm. and fear it's not necessarily something that I could say that I associated with my childhood, but it felt like it came from my childhood er- mm-hmm. era. Mm-hmm. I mean, grief that was mm-hmm. so deep within me that I didn't even know it existed right. within me. That's, and that's so important. So the how often there are non-specific uh, events, but it is the sensation that you can trace back to or you can identify as maybe even in a time period or something. Right. So the trauma is so deeply buried and we're exactly. so unaware yeah and so yeah describe more of that release the release all i can it's very hard to describe this release so i mean you wake i mean let's talk about the next day first of all after you've finished Mm -hmm. and then you wake up the next day and you're looking out at the world through very new eyes Mm. and just bathed in a sense of peace and then you think well is that just the afterglow that normally follows a typical psilocybin uh, journey is this permanent or not is it going to stay? And I think a lot of people, that, especially those that come here um, and that we know about that have had long-lasting depression or anxiety, and this is their point of last turn before, if, without this, what are they going to do? They have a lot of hope. And when you, when you see them first start to come out of their depression and smile and feel good again, they don't trust it. Mm. They don't trust it because they think that when I finished here and I go back to wherever I came from, it's going to come back again. So... Um, but then they see over time that it doesn't. And I had those issues too. But for me, psilocybin has always continued to deliver a sustained sense of peace and uh, lack of anxiety within myself and clear thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, I mean, it's like obvious, I don't even asking the question, but maybe not even pose as a question, just as a statement, that the, the massive relief that you do wake up and feel so many times, mm-hmm. 90% of the time after a, a good dose of psilocybin, um, it, it does fade over time and that's why mm-hmm. you're continuing okay. to go back to it. That's why yep. I, and we continue. So just, you know, just highlighting that psilocybin is not a cure all, mm-hmm. right? It is a massive, uh, it provides a massive amount of relief. Um, but yep. you know, we're always taking on, we're always dealing with our environments and our emotions and the people around us. And so, life is constantly throwing things at us that we've Mm -hmm. got to find a way to work with and process. So of course we're going to get bogged down again by all of the things that happen. Absolutely. Uh, The relief that comes, uh, it's just there. You, you can't put a measure on it. No, no. And it's not the relief that comes through, taking a tranquilizer when you're in an anxious right. state. It's right. not anything or like blacking that. out drunk. Yeah, not blacking knowing. out drunk. Yeah, yeah. It's a sense of deep, deep peace. And I'd spent a lot of time over the years as I was researching psychedelics. I mean, I was comprehensively researching. I came across quite a few manuals from um, the 50s and 60s when people were working with psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And the one common thread that I kept finding is that you've got this two to four week period after a psilocybin experience mm-hmm. in which your tyrannical aspects of your ego are less in control of you mm-hmm. and you have the this period in time in which you can lay down new ways of being in the world mm-hmm. without having the same thought patterns you had, the negative stuff going on, the old habits, the habituation, whatever conditioning you've got that's, that's turning your life into a misery, 
those things are like dialed right the way down in the first two to four weeks. So you've got to go, when you have a psilocybin dose, you've got to go back into reality with a plan based upon what you've understood about yourself now and you understand the source of your negative behavior or thinking patterns, you decide, wow, I don't want to be that way anymore. I know how this has affected my life. Mm-hmm. So you, you're going out to the, back into reality equipped to lay down new ways of being. And if you continue that over the two to four weeks, it sticks. Yeah, awareness. It's all awareness. And becoming, reminding ourselves, keeping ourselves aware, developing habits and patterns and routines that can help keep us aware um, from of what we learn within the soul seven experience. Uh, so let's let's look at the future. Um, what would you like or hope to see for psilocybin in the future? That's a good question. What I'd hope to see, um, I think, the, what I'd like to see is psychedelic clinics. So we've seen how MDMA and cannabis um, are coming back into mainstream. We know that there are ketamine centers now that are opening. Um, I'd love to see psilocybin type centers as well. Mm -hmm. Um, SSRIs, uh, depression medications are only effective for about 30% of the population that takes them. Um, For many, many people, they're a lifesaver. Their lives are turned around by these and that's great. For many, many other people, it just helps them cope and they are numb to their emotions and feelings. They've forgotten how to feel, but they can cope with life. And when you've been doing that for 10, 15, 20 years, that's not really an existence. Um, and I've seen time and time and time again now how psilocybin has cleared people out of deep, deep depressions they've had for many years, um, anxiety-related issues, PTSD, alcoholism, Um, So I would hope that psilocybin is available for people that have mental health issues, first of all. What I'd also like to see is psychedelic hospice. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there's a Tibetan art of living and dying, Mm -hmm. and there is an art to living and there is an art to dying. And um, death has been so medicalized. um, And I think if there can be psychedelic hospices for people where they can overcome their end-of-life anxiety, and, you know, you, you read the research, I think it was John Hopkins did the end-of-life anxiety studies with cancer patients, and they all pretty much reported a much better sense of connection with themselves, the people around them, and the world around them, and that their end-of-life anxiety had just ceased to exist after that. So, And I know how consistent psilocybin is across all populations and all age groups. I've seen it, I've witnessed it, I've read about it, I've researched it. Um, that's what I would like to see, Eric. Sounds like a beautiful vision. Yeah. And we could go into quite a bit there. It's a whole other topic indeed and what those would really look like because there are several models developing, um, but we're not going to take time for that. We'll just see it unfold and we'll probably end up with some conversations in Patreon uh, that you and I maybe have a little Mm -hmm. more in depth about the future of psilocybin. Indeed. So let's, let's hear that billboard though. That's what this is one of my favorites, honestly. <laughs> I, I imagine a nation <laughs> dotted okay. with billboards. Okay, okay. Well, <laughs> of well, I would have to say that um, I did used to work in marketing and advertising. So um, there used to be an agency that I worked for, a big international one, and their, their motto, their tagline was truth well told. So I probably have the tagline as truth well told. Mm. And then below that, psilocybin assisted therapy. Hmm. That's what that billboard mm. would say. 
Well, that's that's uh, that rings true to me because one of the things that I always uh, find from the psilocybin experience is that it reveals deeper levels of truth. You've got to learn how to weed through our own delusions at times or our own uh, fancifications. Um, but once we learn to discern what is our ego telling us what reality is versus what we experience reality to be, uh, then, yeah, the truth well told. Mm-hmm. Indeed. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining the podcast, Justin, and this retreat overall. You've been an enormous help. And, uh, yeah, if you want to hear some more from Justin, you can check out the Patreon page and some of those deeper recordings uh, that we go into these topics in a little more depth. Yeah. Thanks again, Justin. Thanks, Eric. It's been a pleasure to be here. It really is. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Justin. Justin, I want you to know that I truly appreciated your vulnerability and openness. To close out, I would like to leave you all with a song by Waylon Jennings. While country music is certainly not my preferred music genre, this song, Fathers and Sons, not only relates to Justin's choice in Journey Partner, but uh, is personal to me. <laughs> I guess as this episode is overall, huh? I spent a, a lot of time with my father in the car. For much of my life, he was a traveling insurance salesman. He would take me on these runs to rural Kentucky where I would often have to read insurance policies to illiterate coal miners and road workers. As I reflect on that now, I can only imagine the trauma that these men had experienced in their lives and most certainly passed some of that on. So while this song is for you, Justin, and my listeners, it's also for me, for my father, and for my sons. My father had so much to tell me Things he said I had to know Don't make my mistakes There are rules you can't break But I had to find out on my own Now when I look at my own son I know what my father went through There's only so much you can do You're proud when they walk Scared when they run That's how it always has been Between fathers and sons It's a bridge you can't cross It's a cross you can't bear It's a word you can't say The things you can't change No matter how much you care So you do all you can Then you gotta let go You're just part of the flow Of a river that runs Between fathers and sons Your mother will try to protect you Hold you as long as she can But the higher you climb The more you can see That's something that I understand 
One day you'll look at your own son There'll be so much that you want to say But he'll have to find his own way On the road he must take The course he must run That's how it always has been Between fathers and sons It's a bridge you can't cross It's a cross you can't bear It's a word you can't say The things you can't change No matter how much you care So you do all you can then you gotta let go You're just part of the flow Of the river that runs Between fathers and sons
did it hurt?